powerful interest, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning, Melbourne. Good morning. Uh, you are listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR, 8.55am, and in the studio this morning is myself, Zane Alcorn, and... Fergal, back from Malaysia. Uh, welcome back, comrade. Thank you, thank you. And good to be back on the in the studio again. Well, good to have you here. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll talk to Fergal later on. Um, I think it's uh, timely at this time of year to acknowledge that we're broadcasting here at 3CR from the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and we pay our respects to Elders past, present and future. Sovereignty was never ceded and this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Um, Now, there were some pretty rad... Uh, invasion day protests really vibrant this year we'll talk about that in a minute um we were keen to start this morning with a speech given in october last year in sydney as part of the iq2 debate series organized by the ethics center um stan grant has worked as a news correspondent at various australian tv print news and radio stations as well as internationally with cnn and is currently Indigenous Affairs Editor at The Guardian Australia and hosts a nightly news spot on NITV. And Stan's um, speech for the IQ2 debate went viral in the lead-up to Invasion Day, and it's pretty self-evident why uh, when, you, when you have a listen. It's, it's a real powerful speech. So, um, yeah, I thought it was worth playing. So here it is, Stan Grant on racism and the Australian dream. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming along this evening and I would also like to extend my respects to my Gadigal brothers and sisters from my people, the Wiradjuri people. In the winter of 2015, Australia turned to face itself. It looked into its soul and it had to ask this question, who are we? What sort of country do we want to be? And this happened in a place that is most holy, most sacred to Australians. It happened in the sporting field. It happened on the football field. Suddenly the front page was on the back page. It was in the grandstands. Thousands of voices rose to hound an Indigenous man, a man who was told he was an Australian, a man who was told he was an Australian of the year. And they hounded that man into submission. I can't speak for what lay in the hearts of the people who booed Adam Goods. But I can tell you what we heard when we heard those boos. We heard a sound that was very familiar to us. We heard a howl. We heard a howl of humiliation that echoes across two centuries of dispossession, injustice, 
suffering and survival. We heard the howl of the Australian dream and it said to us again, you're not welcome. The Australian dream. We sing of it and we recite it in verse. Australians all let us rejoice for we are young and free. My people die young in this country. We die ten years younger than average Australians and we are far from free. We are fewer than 3% of the Australian population and yet we are 25%, a quarter of those Australians, locked up in our prisons and if you are a juvenile, it is worse, it is 50%. An Indigenous child is more likely to be locked up in prison than they are to finish high school. I love a sunburned country, a land of sweeping plains of rugged mountain ranges. Reminds me that my people were killed on those plains. We were shot on those plains. Disease ravaged us on those plains. I come from those plains. I come from the people west of the Blue Mountains, the Wiradjuri people, where in the 1820s the soldiers and settlers waged a war of extermination against my people. Yes, a war of extermination. That was the language used at the time. Go to the Sydney Gazette and look it up and read about it. Martial law was declared and my people could be shot on sight. Those rugged mountain ranges, my people, women and children were herded over those ranges to their deaths. The Australian dream. The Australian dream is rooted in racism. It is the very foundation of the dream. It is there at the birth of the nation. It is there in terra nullius, an empty land, a land for the taking. 60,000 years of occupation, a people who made the first seafaring journey in the history of mankind, a people of law, a people of law, L-O-R-E, a people of music and art and dance and politics, none of it mattered because our rights were extinguished because we were not here according to British law. And when British people looked at us, they saw something subhuman and if we were human at all, we occupied the lowest rung on civilization's ladder. We were fly-blown Stone Age savages and that was the language that was used. Charles Dickens, the great writer of the age, when referring to the noble savage of which we were counted among, said it would be better that they be wiped off the face of the earth. Captain Arthur Philip, a man of enlightenment, a man who was instructed to make peace with the so-called natives in a matter of years, was sending out raiding parties with the instruction, bring back the severed heads of the black troublemakers. They were smoothing the dying pillow. My people were rounded up and put on missions from where, if you escaped, you were hunted down, you were roped and tied and dragged back. And it happened here, it happened on the mission that my grandmother and my great-grandmother are from at Warren Gesder on the Darling Point at the Murrumbidgee River. Read about it. It happened. By 1901, when we became a nation, when we federated the colonies, we were nowhere. We're not in the Constitution save for race provisions which allowed for laws to be made that would take our children, that would invade our privacy, that would tell us who we could marry and tell us where we could live, the Australian dream. By 1963, the year of my birth, the dispossession was continuing. Police came at gunpoint under cover of darkness to Mapoon, an Aboriginal community in Queensland, and they ordered people from their homes and they burned those homes to the ground and they gave the land to a bauxite mining company and today those people remember that as the night of the burning. 
1963, when I was born, I was counted among the flora and fauna, not among the citizens of this country. Now, you will hear things tonight. You will hear people say, but you've done well. Yes, I have. And I'm proud of it. And why have I done well? I've done well because of who has come before me. My father, who lost the tips of three fingers working in sawmills to put food on our table because he was denied an education. My grandfather, who served to fight, fight wars for this country when he was not yet a citizen and came back to a segregated land where he couldn't even share a drink with his digger mates in the pub because he was black. My great-grandfather, who was jailed for speaking his language to his grandson, my father, jailed for it. My grandfather on my mother's side, who married a white woman who reached out to Australia, lived on the fringes of town until the police came, put a gun to his head, bulldozed his tin humpy and ran over the graves of the three children he buried there. That's the Australian dream. I have succeeded in spite of the Australian dream, not because of it, and I have succeeded because of those people. You might hear tonight... But you have white blood in you. And if the white blood in me was here tonight, my grandmother, she would tell you of how she was turned away from a hospital giving birth to her first child because she was giving birth to the child of a black person. The Australian dream. We're better than this. I have seen the worst of the world as a reporter. I've, I spent a decade in war zones from Iraq to Afghanistan and Pakistan. We are an extraordinary country. We are in so many respects the envy of the world. If I was sitting here where my friends are tonight, I would be arguing passionately for this country. But I stand here with my ancestors and the view looks very different from where I stand. The Australian dream. We have our heroes. Albert Namatira wrote that painted the soul of this nation. Vincent Lingiari put his hand out for Gough Whitlam to pour the sand of his country through his fingers and say, this is my country. Kathy Freeman lit the torch to the Olympic Games, but every time we are lured into the light, we are mugged by the darkness of this country's history. Of course racism is killing the Australian dream. It is self-evident that it's killing the Australian dream. But we are better than that. The people who stood up and supported Adam Goods and said no more, they are better than that. The people who marched across the bridge for reconciliation, they are better than that. The people who supported Kevin Rudd when he said sorry to the stolen generations, they are better than that. My children and their non-Indigenous friends are better than that. My wife who is non-Indigenous is better than that. And one day I want to stand here and be able to say as proudly and sing as loudly as anyone else in this room, Australians all... Let us rejoice. Thank you. Um, all right, this is Green Lab for Radio on 3CR, and that was Stan Grant speaking at the IQ2 debate series in Sydney in October last year. Uh, organised by the Ethics Centre, and um, yeah, pretty, pretty pretty powerful, pretty electrifying speech, I reckon. Nailed it. Um, and of course, we've just seen some really strong Invasion Day rallies around the country. Invasion Day, Survival Day, Sovereignty Day. Um, Melbourne, Sydney, Canberra, Brisbane, Perth, Adelaide, Tassie. There was a solidarity protest over in Aotearoa. Uh, this this is like it's got to be up there as, as one of the strongest um, 
invasion day mobilizations around the country i reckon which is really um really good to see um people who've been organizing around the forced closures over in wa like warriors of the aboriginal resistance uh blackfellow revolution um yeah they've been able to mobilize a, a really strong um yeah, really strong demo on Invasion Day. And I, I certainly feel like there's a real kind of groundswell about changing the date. Like, it's dubious that we need to have a big nationalist day of flag-waving at all. Yeah, yeah whether... It, but, but on that day... But if we are going to yeah. have one of them, <laughs> that is the worst possible day that you could have it. Well, it just seems to be that... Every year, it just becomes more and more cringeworthy. Mm. You know, not just not just among you know those who kind of you know care, but amongst more well, like just amongst more and more of the population. Like I think that the movement is actually building to recognise Australia Day as Invasion Day. And you know, I wouldn't be surprised if in our, you know, in our lifetime it that just becomes what it's officially recognised as. Mm. You know, or even at least unofficially amongst the majority of the population for what it truly is. I think people are. I think people are getting the senses about it. Yeah, and I, I reckon it's becoming less and less um, acceptable to try and say, "Oh, what do we need to be sorry about when this all happened, you know, 228 years ago?" Because it's about the fact that genocide is ongoing, and there's an article in the latest Green Left. Um, barbarous treatment of Aboriginal youth in NT detention centres confirmed. And the story is from um, Jacob Andrew Wather, and it says, The Northern Territory has the highest rate of youth detention in the country, six times the national average. Of those detained in the juvenile justice system, 97% are Aboriginal youth. And there have been a number of reports and investigations in the past two years into the treatment of Aboriginal youth in custody. They show that by deliberate design and, and policy, Aboriginal youth are treated in barbarous, inhumane and illegal ways. Uh, multiple incidents have been reported of handcuffing, gassing, shackling, spit-hooding and solidarity confinement for 22 out of 24 hours, lasting from 7 to 17 days and being forced to eat hot, meals with their bare hands and uh, the uh, the Human Rights Law Centre has put out this report um, and a spokesperson Ruth uh, Barson said the recent case of a 17 year old boy being hooded and strapped to a chair to close for two hours shows there is a pattern of mistreating young people in the Northern Territory's Dondale Youth Detention Centre uh, so it's not it is about the genocide and the massacres of Aboriginal people, but it's also about the fact that Aboriginal people live in third world conditions in uh, one of the richest countries in the world. They're not provided with the same standard of health care and education and housing and services that the broader population is provided with. Um, they're having land rights stripped off them. They're being kicked off their communities. They're still dying in custody. They're still dying at the hands of police. Um, and they're still being locked up in ridiculous apartheid numbers. Um, so it's, it's, not, it's not this thing that kind of happened in the distant past. Well, well that's it. I mean, like, I've always used the analogy. It's like if someone, st- you know, person A steals a car from person B... 
and then gives the car to their children. It's like, well, the children are benefiting from stolen property. You don't stop benefiting from stolen property just because it was given to you by someone else who stole it. You know, and that's that's what it is. Like, you know, us, you know, white Australians are benefiting from the theft of Aboriginal land. And not to mention, as you said, the continued exploitation and continued oppression of Aboriginal people. You know, it doesn't stop just because we didn't start it. You know, we're continuing it. Mm. All right. Uh, you are listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR. You're listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR. You're Brunswick has a new state-of-the-art community kitchen. The kitchen is available to hire seven days a week by individuals or groups who want to run a workshop or a course, hold an event or just get together to cook with friends. Ceres is also running team building days and hens parties with a difference. Get in touch with us at ceres.org.au or call 9389 0100 to find out more. Ceres Community Kitchen, celebrating collaboration and food. Group space for hire to train, connect and inspire. Series, a 3CR supporter. Alright, welcome back to Green Left Radio on 3CR. And with us this morning, we've got a regular guest, Fergal McGovern, intrepid um, socialist traveller. And you've just come back from a trip to Malaysia to hang out with a bunch of um, comrades over there from the... PSM. Oh, what a mad bunch of dudes. You know, talk about building a revolution. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you know, like it's just actually being able to see um, the way they engage with the community. You know, it's not just all about um, electioneering and politicking by any means. Actually Mm. being part of the community and getting involved in direct struggles, you know, like, I mean, particularly to do with evictions and supporting urban pioneers. Um, oh, it was just amazing. It was so inspiring. Yeah, right. So um, how has your, um, um, what's the word, how's your uh, geographic knowledge of Malaysia improved? Where did you go while you were there? Oh, I'd say it's 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 medium, and considering that it was zero before, it's not bad. Right. Um, oh, so we well, so first landed in Kuala Lumpur, um, and then went to a city. Called, got a little brief kind of rundown of the history of, of Malaysia and the kind of I suppose you know the political conditions and all that kind of stuff and um also uh went up so we went spent a lot of time in the ta- city of Ip- uh, Ipo, Ipo where the PSM actually has a um a uh, an, an MP sitting there 
And uh, next, um, and after that, we, so I spent a few days there getting a you know, feel of the area and seeing some, what some of the branches in the PSM are doing, and then Cameron Highlands, and then back to uh, back to Kuala Lumpur. Hmm. Yeah, we can. And uh, what sort of we, we were talking about this briefly last week. There's it's it's a pretty tough wicket for socialist and left wing activists over there. Yeah, it's pretty common for the for the cops to just come and arrest people and put them in jail for... Yeah, well, actually, I mean, I mean, one of the things was, I mean, we couldn't, I suppose, you know, uh, being you know, in there on a tourist visa, we couldn't engage in any of the, you know, political activities, but um, there was a, uh, a t- while we were up, while we were there, there was a TPPA, an anti-TPPA rally, hmm. and um, after the rally, they systematically went around, the police went around and you know, arresting or, you know, paying visits to um to the speakers of the rally. Mm. You know, like, and that's the kind of thing, you know, it's like they won't arrest you at the rally, but expect a knock on the door, you know, the, the, that night. Mm. Yeah, it's, they don't make, they don't make it easy. Mm. They don't make it easy at all. Um, I mean, not, you know, never mind just the, the, um, oh gosh, yeah, no, it's, yeah, yeah, they make it hard, all right. Mm. And um, you were talking a bit about what campaigns are prominent over there. So what's this um, evictions campaign? Well, the thing is, is in Malaysia, I guess you've got what they call urban pioneers and the government would like to call them squatters. But the thing is, is that essentially they've been oftentimes, more often than not, and especially the ones, these places where we visited, the people we visited, they've been occupying land since longer than before Malaysia was even a state. Hmm. So Malaysia got its independence in 1957. There's people there who've been um, living on the land, um, like, you know, like abandoned mines and that kind of thing, and in, just in, in forests, and they've made villages, like built villages themselves, or they've hmm. um, started farming the land themselves, taking it on their own initiative, again, for like 80 years. So... Again, well longer than Malaysia was a state, but because they didn't get a grant, the land remained in the hands of the government, or often in times of the, you know, like the the companies that owned the land beforehand, so the miners, and so you know, essentially col- people who were involved in colonial extraction of the land, mm. um, um, and then um, the government has later on, like you know, ended up selling the land to developers or to people agribusiness who wants to have palm oil plantations. And despite the fact that you've had people living on this land for 80 years, farming it, building houses, whatever, mm. gen- living on it for generations, yeah. the government what, you know, sells the land to developers and the owner of that grant can then has the power, and the, the legal power at the very least, to evict those people. Mm. Um, but the, P- and the, P- the work the PSM has been doing has been in organising those communities um, either to outright resist eviction or at the very least, as a bare minimum, to get some kind of to get compensation in the way of homes, mm. you know, like to be built by the developer, or at the very least provided for the developer, so they're not just being kicked out mm. and made homeless. Yeah, fair enough. And the um, the TPPA campaign looks like it's a bit more uh, vibrant over there than than we've seen here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in fact, that was kind of something 
that we were talking about over there was that um just in in Australia, I mean, it's you'd barely know that you know, like there's not much resistance to it at all, bar the mm. trade unions, and oftentimes resistance comes across in a very kind of nationalistic kind of a way, like protect, you know, protect our jobs, keep out, you know, it's like it's like keeping out um, foreign workers, but not keeping out foreign workers, you know, like you know, keeping out foreign workers altogether, mm. not saying demanding fair rights for foreign workers at equal footing with Australians, mm. you know, it's like um. Yeah, like, but, but over there, it's it's very much more kind of, you know, understanding like the intellectual property and all this kind of stuff that how it's going to you know cause medicines to become more expensive because you know you're not you're going to have intellectual property rights over medicines extended for even longer and longer and longer, and you know prohibiting the generic brand drugs and things like that. So yeah, oh yeah, it's very they take it very very seriously over there, especially compared to the sort of meagre attention it gets in Australia. Mm. And the government, I mean, is very intimidated by it. I mean, hence the reason why they feel the need to go and arrest people after a rally. Mm. So how can we um, how can we work in solidarity here with uh, comrades in Malaysia? How do, how can we support what they're doing? I mean, I think just generally, you know, looking up and finding out the kind of stuff that they're doing, um, you know, it never hurts to, you know, like write a few articles in a paper if you're in a position to write an article for a paper, talk about it on the radio, I suppose. Um, I, I kind of actually see the PSM as being the the next, you know, as being, you know, potentially being like the PSUV uh, in Venezuela. Mm. Um, PSUV or PSVU? PSUV. Yeah, 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 there you go. You got it right first time. Yeah. Um, United Socialist Party of Venezuela. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like actually, and and because they because of the pure fact that they're building, you know, t- you know, not meaning to use activist jargon, but building grassroots kind of activism. They're not, you know, like they're actually like the way they started is really fascinating. They started was the com- uh, community development committee, and um, what they did was they just went around. It was some uni students who went around doing surveys. And that kind of thing is part of their degrees to find out what is the life like in these in these urban pioneer villages. Uh, often, and um, you know, like what conditions do they face? You know, like you know, you know that, that just that sort of just and and what what can be done to sort of assist? And they sort of and they sort of um, actually, I'm thinking of the first uh, anyway, uh, the first kind of community they um, that they took us to where they actually had just recently won free houses, hmm. um, just before being evicted. Um, oh, sorry, bef- uh, rather than being, you know, like in the face of eviction, I should say. Um, it was a 15 year struggle, but, um, anyway, but essentially, yeah, they went around like finding out what kind of services they can provide and just sort of getting involved in the community. And then sort of like within, after like a few, three or four years of being involved with this community, they, they end up, the government sold the land to a developer. Hmm. Um, no, cor- correct, correction. Um, the uh, this community had been workers in a rubber plantation, and they'd lived in the house. Like again, lived like for generations, lived in the houses. The, the company of the, the owned the land, uh, and then sold it to developers. Um, and, and it was amazing, like just seeing these pictures of like the developers sending in gangs to go and smash the residents' houses and things like that, trying to intimidate them out. But like fifteen years of, of being involved in the struggle, um, this community ended up getting, you know, winning, how, like um, the developer, the develop, the court essentially ordered that the developer must, but like, recognise that they'd been living there for as long as they'd been living there, that they had a right to 
housing mm. and that the developer must build them homes on in this new development. Um, mm. But the PSM was in, engaged in that struggle like um, the whole time. And again, through like really kind of basic kind of means, like just finding out the you know like you know not through like you know big national campaigns, but actually working and you know like helping coordinate. Um, helping coordinate uh, legal teams and that kind of thing, mm. helping... Sounds like it would be real oh. important over there when you've got that repressive climate, lots of arrests, yeah. that sort of legal... I mean, it's important here too, it's important anywhere, but, yeah, particularly in a place where people could just get thrown in jail and forgotten about. Yeah, and there's a lot of government intimidation and a lot of people don't know what rights they actually have and, you know, and having and that kind of expertise comes in handy. But also, as well as coordinating people from outside the community, come and defend against bulldozers and things like that, and and like that's just the kind of thing the person is involved in, like um, you know, really basic kind of direct kind of involvement in struggle, and mm. and it's just fantastic, and 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 it's helping build their campaign to um, like you know, it's funny because for them the electoral kind of thing is only more recent, but because of it, despite the kind of um. You know, like the, the the ruling party's been in power since independence. You know, like it's and um, but uh, you know they, they've been able to get in a position where they've got a sitting MP and and state MPs. Um, but and that's because of people know who they are, like you know, kind of on the ground that they actually do work. You know, like they 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 they're seen as the people to go to. Um, you know, when you know when you've got a problem in your community. Mm. Almost like council workers, it actually made me appreciate all the more the work that Sue Bolton and Sam Rainwright do, you know, like mm. as, as, as councillors. Mm. Steve Jolly and... Yeah, yeah, Steve Jolly too, you yeah. know, like, because you have to. When you're a socialist, mm. you know, like, that's just the way you've got to do it. Like, um, you know, you've got to, if you, you know, like, that's, you've got to respond to the needs of the community, you know. You've got to hear what it's about and, and, and take that issue up, you know, like, yeah. You can't, mm. you can't escape doing it. Mm. Uh, we could well we'll uh, we'll have to keep an eye on developments in Malaysia and because uh, you're unfortunately moving back to Brizzy. Yeah, yeah, you uh, may, I think um yeah on the going going back up on the ninth. Yeah, so going 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 go instigate insurrection in Brisbane. Yeah, uh, well, that's a sad story. Well, we'll have to do um you can become our Brisbane correspondent for Green Left Radio and uh, you can also be someone who can keep us posted about. Malaysia and what's going on there. Oh, definitely. Having, I, you know, strengthen those sort of links. Yeah, and keep your eye out in the green. Oh, just the listeners as well. Keep your eye out for Green Left Weekly because if I, I could go on about this stuff all, <laughs> all week, but um, uh, Sarah Hathaway, another comrade who was on the um on the who went on the tour, is writing a few articles. You know, like giving a rundown of the kind of stuff we're up to, and yeah, mm. I, I I just it, there's just too much to focus on. Mm. You know, like. Even what I've, you know, like 10 days, it was mind-blowing, absolutely non-stop. It's mm. just unbelievable. I, I went to Manila a couple of years back and visited some comrades from the um, PLM, the Party of the Labouring Masses, and then I also went to the Palaya Airport picket, and there was some comrades from uh, kind of like the equivalent of the uh, socialist alternative over here, uh, another party called the Workers' Party, part, uh, Partido Manga Gawa, who are more um, aligned with that international socialist tendency. They were uh, heavily involved in this strike against um, Palaya, the airline that was sacking a bunch of people. And it really struck me being over there that 
this was just the local, um, you know, version of the same stuff that we have in, in Australia or, or in other places where you go, that like total sort of switched on, interconnected. People know exactly about, um, you know, what's going on in, in Venezuela and in Rojava and, because I saw with Sarah Hathaway, one of her pictures, she's like, oh, check it out, they've got a Rajava Solidarity poster on the wall. So, yeah, I guess that, that real sense of interconnectedness and people around the world keeping an eye on what everyone else is doing. And One thing that really blew me away was one of the um, branches that we visited, there was um, some urban pioneers who essentially what they'd done many years ago, there was an abandoned tin mine, Oh, and this again, like just so you could even go over there just to appreciate the type of agriculture and that kind of stuff, like you know, from the sustainable mm. agriculture point of view. Yeah, these, right. these they'd occupied, they'd gone to the land of the, like these degraded sort of like where they'd been tin mining, and there's just these great big um, ponds, and mm. like they, they'd turn them into fish ponds. So sustainable fishing and all that kind of stuff. It was just yeah, amazing. Right. But um, the farmers who were being evicted, uh, again, like faced with eviction, land sold to developers, they were going to be evicted. Um, so what they'd done was they'd formed a farmers' coalition to sort of jointly, all the, you know, the PSM had sort of helped facilitate them forming this farmers' coalition so they could, you know, collectively, you know, um, sort of you know, negotiate or whatever with the, with the developers, but um, these farmers, man, that was militant as bloody hell. You know, like, oh, so ideologically switched on. Like, um, their demand to the government, and this was just so, oh, I loved it. You should have just seen the energy. It was like fire. Their demand to the government wasn't, don't give us, we don't want the grants to the land. We want this land to be protected for food security. Hmm. You know, if, and like, if, if I become bankrupt, like this is what they were saying, like, and I have to go, I don't want the land to be sold to someone else. Mm. I want the land to be available for someone else to farm. They wanted tenureship of the land, but they didn't want ownership of it because they recognised that food yeah, security right. is so much so, more greater. So than it's that. kind of like um, kind of like a national park, but for farming. Yeah, so it's like owning the. This yeah. should be protected for food production. It was yeah, yeah. and it just like um you know like the you know the the kind of understanding of the struggle and all this kind of stuff that they're facing, like why they're being kicked off the land, who it serves, all this kind of stuff. And again, like not looking for individualistic solutions, but collective solutions. Mm. And even sort of like from that, it had developed into talk about, so not just a coalition for, you know, like, you know, like organising, you know, fighting with the developers and all this kind of stuff um, and resisting eviction, but also into how they can collectively improve their land. So if like because like they don't own the grant to their land, they got they have no collateral to borrow money from the bank to borrow money to, um you know to spend money on you know on, on you know mm. making their farms more productive. Mm. But if one farmer's got more money, they were talking about setting up a cooperative so mm. that you know lending to another farmer and all this kind of stuff like just keeping it within within themselves mm. because they can't get it from anyone else. Yeah, and I was just like you know from this kind of so it's like. You know, we come together to, you know, like in, you know, to sort of fight the struggle, but what do we do in the peacetime? And mm. that was what really amazed me that, you know, like it's, it's not just about coming together when you're under attack, but coming together afterwards. On an ongoing basis yeah. and building that, that cooperative uh, economy. Mm, wicked. All right. Uh, we should probably 
Move on. I'll, I've just got an announcement here. Uh, people should get involved with uh, the Community Radio Federation. Elections are coming up soon, so if that's something you can contribute to, you should consider that. Would you like to get involved in the decision-making process at 3CR? Nominations are now open in 3CR's Community Radio Federation elections. You can stand as a subscriber representative and have valuable input into the programming and future direction of this diverse and dynamic radio station. Nominations are due Wednesday, 17th of February at 5pm. For more information, contact 3CR's station manager, Mary McEwen, on 94198377 or download the nomination form from the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au forward slash People. Oh no. Freeze, fellas, you're under arrest. What do I do? Um, call a lawyer? Hello, Fitzroy Legal Service. Mm hmm. Okay, well, if you are arrested, you should make a no comment interview. A no comment interview? Yeah. Well, how do I do that? You say. No, no comment. comment! To everything? Yes. Accept your name and address. Every other question you should answer with no comment. So if he asks me what colour my shoes are, I say no comment. Yes, you say... No, no comment. comment! To everything? Yes, say... No, no comment. comment! If you are arrested, exercise your right to contact a lawyer and say no comment. It's for Legal Service, proudly supporting 3CR. You are listening to Greenleaf Radio on the Friday morning breakfast show, broadcast live on 3CR Radio, 855 AM digital and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Greenleaf Radio is brought to you by the Greenleaf Weekly newspaper, providing a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment before profit. Subscribe to Greenleaf Weekly by visiting the website at greenleaf.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first seven issues. All right, welcome back. Now, on to a bit of news. Um, I've just We don't actually have coverage of this in Green Left quite yet, but I'm sure there will be in uh, next week's issue. Uh, but uh, from the Huffington Post down under... Uh, Greens challenger Jim Casey slams Anthony Albanese's socialist comments. Anthony Albanese's Greens opponent for his inner-city Sydney seat has hit back at criticisms of his socialist background. Albanese, the member for Grainler, on Thursday announced he would re-nominate for the seat. In speaking to media at Balmain's Unity Hall Hotel, known as the birthplace of the Australian Labor Party, Albanese spent almost as much time talking up his track record as he did rubbishing the resume of Jim Casey, the Greens' opponent and former secretary of the New South Wales Fire Brigade Employees Union. Uh, Albo said, The Greens' political party candidate who has been chosen in this electorate, has spent more time in the international socialist organisation than he has in the Greens' political party, and if he was fair income, he'd run as an international socialist and see how many votes he got there, Albanese said. It's unfortunate that the Greens have been captured in this area and in New South Wales by people who have a history in the Socialist Party of Australia or the International Socialist or the Socialist Workers' Party and want to use the Green Banner to advance an agenda that's about anything but the environment. (laughs) Um, 
And, um, yes, Jim Casey said, I make no apologist. I make no apologies for my socialist ideals. It's a bit sad Albanese is running away from this. He's happy to DJ songs by Billy Bragg for his mates, but when it comes to a political context, he's channeling Joe McCarthy, Casey said. So, isn't isn't, isn't Anthony Albanese of the the social? The, oh, isn't Anthony Albanese of the socialist left? The so-called the, socialist in the, left. In the Labor but Party. I mean, I mean talk, talk about rubbishing people who've got social come from an organisation of people with socialists in the name. Hmm. And to his credit, Jim Casey uh, basically said, "I was looking forward to a clean campaign." Uh, Anthony Albanese has done some good work in the community and so on and it's unfortunate to see him resort to this sort of dirty tactics and mudslinging and, and red baiting um, to, you know, sort of so early in the campaign and um, yeah, it's uh, it's not really a, a, a gleaming advertisement for the socialist left of the ALP engaging in, in red baiting I mean, I wouldn't say they deserve the word, even the word left, to be honest. But, um, yeah, no, I mean, that, that's exactly right. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. And you've got Jeremy Corbyn in the UK, pr- you know, proudly identifying as a socialist, saying let's re-nationalise the British railways. He's pro-Palestine, he's pro-climate action, uh, he supports stronger funding for the National Health Service, and he's polling really well. You've got Bernie Sanders in the... US is he a, he claims to be a democratic socialist he's probably trying to say that he's a social democrat but regardless of what you want to say he he calls himself a socialist and he's not rubbishing other people who also are socialists i mean mm. you know like for being socialist like i mean it was that the um he had the endorsement from the uh socialist alternative over in the united states what's their name i can't remember a name Someone Savant, is that right? Anyway. Um, yeah, Kshama Savant, yeah. the um, the socialists' uh, councillor from, I forget what city she's it's, from. It's in the West, it's mm. Washington or Seattle or somewhere like that. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, and again, like, but, you know, none of this kind of sectarian kind of nonsense are just slinging off, slagging, or, I mean, never mind sectarian, but just slagging off someone for being a socialist. I mean, Bernie Sanders, again, we can, we can, de- we can debate intellectually what a socialist is and whether he's it. But mm. the point is, is he's doing good stuff for the left over there and, you know, I think building a good name of the left. And then on top of that, he's, you know, again, like being, showing cooperation and solidarity to, to a, so, a more, you know, what is, I think we can more confidently definitely say is a, is a socialist party. Mm. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. And yeah, this is kind of, this is rubbish. You know, like if, yeah, if you're generally a progressive person, you don't waste your time slagging off other people who are progressive mm. just because they're not in the same party as you. Mm. You know, you build and you cooperate. Mm. Um, and yeah, and I think there's a time for like you know debate, but not just going in the middle of an election campaign. Oh, he's a socialist. Oh. Don't stay away from them. They're they're from a parallel universe. They're not in the real world. And above all else, you know, he's he's joined the Greens and he's concerned about anything but the environment. Like I know for a fact that people from um, Solidarity, which kind of grew out of the international socialist organisation, and that the ISO themselves, they're very they're very upfront about climate 
um, action and you know moving away from coal into renewables. And uh, well, and that's I right. think Albo's scared because Albo's meant to be one of the strongest voices on climate action in the ALP. <laughs> But he's got a fight on his hands if he wants to go up against well, Jim the, Casey because he's, he's real sharp the, on the question of climate. I mean, I saw uh, comments in the article of um, Al- Anthony Albanese putting down his, um, you know, putting down Casey's, uh, you know, credentials in community involvement and, you know, like all, you know, like the ISOs. And again, like just thinking of solidarity and seeing how much work they do in RAC. You know, it's. I, I just kind of think. I, mean, I can tell you what. I never. I never saw Anthony Albanese at a rack meeting. Yeah. And I don't think. And, and I don't think I've ever seen him at a at a, at a rally organised by a rack either. Yeah. A refugee action collective. I mm. Say. Um. Yeah. So it's. I think it's a bit rich for you know himself to be putting down any socialist and mm. engagement in the community. Poor form. Mm. Uh. Moving on, uh, page three of the latest Green Left. Maritime Union of Australia members at Patrick Stevedore's terminals struck for 24 hours on January 18 at the ports of Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane and Fremantle to demand job security and an improved enterprise agreement. The strike followed work bans at the Port Botany site in Sydney from January 4. The campaign's continuing with Sydney MUA members taking protected strike action for 48 hours from January 25. Um, the MUA action comes on top of industrial action by tugboat engineers around the country in support of their own demands. This is the biggest industrial confrontation at Patrick since the historic 1998 waterfront dispute when the company tried to sack its whole workforce and bring in balaclava-wearing thugs and scabs to drive out the MUA. Patrick is the largest stevedoring company in Australia, handling about 45% of all container cargo in the country. Now, wouldn't it have been something if that had happened when the um, oh, when the Hutchinson's dispute was on? Mm. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, geez, well, I think wouldn't, wouldn't that slowed things down? <laughs> yeah, I think they're interrelated. So there's, there's a bit of a... a a fresh battle happening around the country on on the waterfront. So, yeah, it's good to see MUA firing up. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it'd be great if we could organise some, um, you know, strike collections or that kind of stop work collections or that kind of thing, you know, like just to give support for the union and all that sort of thing. Show our solidarity wherever we can. Mm. Oh, good on him. Can I? All right. Uh, Time for a message. Hey, this is Pressure MC from the Hilltop Hoods. Hey, what's up? This is Safa from the Hilltop Hoods. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on your dial. Support community radio and subscribe now. Alrighty, uh, welcome back. You're listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR. And uh, this morning we have got um, John Knox on the line. One second. And uh, John John was part of a 
uh, part of the group Direct Action Melbourne, which took part in a protest back in 2014 to draw attention to the regressive influence on climate policy wielded by power company AGL. John and a couple of others will be facing court today regarding charges laid in relation to that protest. We won't go into the specifics of the court case for legal reasons, but we are keen to talk about climate action with John. So, uh, yeah, John, welcome to Green Left Radio. How are you? Uh, yeah, not too bad. So, um, why why would you say AGL have been the target of climate campaigners in recent years? Um, well, there's uh, there's a number of reasons. Um, in 2014, there, there were a number of reasons for our pro- protests. In 2014, um, they added more um, more fossil fuel generation capacity than their entire renewable portfolio, yet um, yet at the same time they tout themselves as a sustainable company. It's just there's a disconnect there. Uh, at the same time as that, they were putting in a submission to the RET review to completely get rid of the RET, the renewable energy target. Mm. And uh, Australians want renewable energy in the grid. Um, and Australia is a country that can actually power our entire grid many times over with renewable energy. We are the we're we're the um, envy of the rest of the world in that we can actually do that. Mm. Um, as well as all of that, <laughs> um, uh, in Gloucester and New South Wales, prime agricultural land, um, AGL had plans in 2014 and have carried out those plans to some extent. Uh, of drilling 330 coal seam gas wells. Mm. Now this is prime agricultural land, and they've they've had problems with the drilling, in that it's it's been causing uh, causing pollution. Mm. How many of those gas wells have they ended up building? Or how many of those uh, gas wells have they ended up building? I, I'm not exactly sure of the the exact number. Uh, it hasn't been that many, thank goodness. The community in Gloucester is dead set against it. As you'd imagine, it's agricultural land. Why, why would you want uh, coal seam gas wells on your property? Yeah, well, mm. we've seen in Queensland exactly what they do with um, Link Energy. Poison, what was it, like 300-odd 300, 300 of, square yep. kilometres of land poisoned and unusable? Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, fracking is not a sustainable bridge. Well, to, it's, uh, it's not, even really a, not, not even really a bridge because... Um, Fracking uh, brings with it uh, fugitive emissions, and mm. if you factor in the fugitive emissions, uh, then coal seam gas is worse than coal. Mm. Yeah, I, I grew up around Newcastle, and f- f- from the age of like three or four, would go camping with my grandparents and family up around Gloucester, and it's it's outrageous what they're doing there. So, yeah, uh, attacking the rest and trying to push uh, coal seam gas into Australia. Pretty mm-hmm. uh, pretty outrageous. They're, they're probably at the top of the list of climate vandals in, in Australia. Yeah, they're trying to green up their image. They're saying that they're going to, um, going to get rid of all of their coal-fired power stations by 2050. <laughs> wow, that's now, ambitious. <laughs> now, now uh, I've got news for them. They're going to be getting rid of them a whole lot sooner than that. Hmm. Well, that's right. If we if we want to have a planet by 2050, well, totally. 
Yeah. I like I, I I went to, into this with my eyes open. I knew that there would be consequences. Um, um, I did this for my kids' future. Mm. I, I was willing to pay the price, but I wasn't willing to pay the price of my kids' future mm. for what they're doing. And co big corporates that that damage the environment willingly, knowingly damage the environment like this have to be brought to to account. Yeah, I think that's a that's a real motivation for a lot of people taking grassroots climate action and, and engaging in potentially non-violent forms of resistance is, yeah, that real future-mindedness. What sort of future are we, we handing on? And just this week, reports have emerged of a, a heat wave at the North Pole with the temperature tipping back into melting temperatures, i.e. above zero, for the second time in a month. Uh, so, John, do you think that the gap between government policy and the reality of what's happening in the world means we're likely to see more people taking grassroots action around the issue? Well, well let's hope so. The, the movement is growing. Um, uh, more people are becoming uh, vociferous about this issue. This is, uh, this is something that, that we've known about for 30 years now, 30 mm. years, and we've done SFA. Mm. Um, the governments have done SFA. Some countries are, uh, are progressive, but here in Australia we seem to be tied to coal's apron strings. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I think Australia is the, both the canary and the coal mine. The, yes. <laughs> the, the fossil fuel lobby is, is so powerful here. But yeah. we have got such such potential for renewable energy and a fairly active... Uh, you know, environment movement and grassroots. And, 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 and growing stronger. I mean, I think yeah. that the climate rally as well last year in November, you know, it, it may not have put, you know, we, there might be the criticism of not putting forth coherent demands, but that being said, I mean, it was obviously made quite clear that people want to do something and feel the need that something needs to be done. You know, working out what that is, you know, for some is another issue altogether. I mean, I think we've all got a good idea what that is, but the very fact that people care to, attend protests, I think, is a positive sign. Mm. Absolutely. Um, the, um, the, the thing that people need to realise as well is that even if you think that you don't have an interest in coal mines, if you have super and your super is investing in coal mines and other fossil fuel in investments, then you are likely as not going to be ending up with a stranded investment, which means your superannuation money is going to be down the toilet. Mm. And this is what the divestment movement is talking about, and that is also gaining a lot of traction. Yeah, it's good to do, see. Do a, do a check on the, um, on the hashtag stranded assets, and you, you might see what I mean. And yeah. all these fossil fuel investments are going to be stranded. So even if you don't care about the climate, but you do care about your uh, superannuation, you need to get out of fossil fuels. There's a, there's a similar movement as well, I suppose, on the universities with the yep. massive amounts of money like from universities. And you don't think of universities as being investment institutions, but, uh, no. yeah, hundreds of millions of dollars in coal mines. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and some are coming around. Uh, Swinburne Uni last year have uh, decided to divest completely from fossil fuels. Yeah, good to see. And that's, uh, that's really great to see. We'd like to see other, uh, other supposed leaders in the universities uh, like Melbourne and Monash to do likewise.
And, John, since that protest back in 2014, there's been a change of government. Some in the climate movement have spoken favourably of Malcolm Turnbull and believe he'll deliver better policy and is more forward-thinking about climate and renewables. What, what do you think? He says all the right words, but currently the policies haven't changed to match them. Mm. And that, that may be a function of him uh, him believing that he doesn't have the uh, the... Uh, capital, the political capital to to use at present, but he's got to realise that the people in his party that are uh, that are uh, stalling action on climate change are the ones who the the um, the population are going to rise up against. <laughs> hmm. And on a on a related note, what did you think of the Paris Climate Summit and the the outcome there? Well. Um, it was probably the best we could have hoped for. And indeed, the one-and-a-half-degree target, even though it's probably unreachable, uh, we're going to go over 1.5 degrees. Um, that, is a, that is a good thing, but it's still not enough. Uh, we've, we can see now what one degree of warming will produce in the world. We're losing glaciers at an amazing rate. Mm. Uh, the, the West Antarctic ice sheet has been said uh, to be terminally affected by climate change. Mm. We're going to get sea level rise. We're going to get supercharged storms. Mm. It's um, the, uh, the, the effects of climate change is going to affect everyone, mm. including the fossil fuel companies. Now, they've had the opportunity for 30 years now to actually get into renewable energy. You've got to ask the question, why haven't they? Well, it's not the most profitable path, is it? It's well, more it's profitable. Not, just... not if you're planning on living in any kind of civilization. Hmm. All right, well, uh, we'll let you go. You've probably got to get ready and, and put your suit on and stuff. <laughs> so, uh, but, yeah, uh, thanks heaps for speaking with us today. Yeah, good luck as well. And, uh, yeah, Thank we'll you. Keep, a, keep an eye out for more, um, more grassroots climate action across Melbourne from various groups. And, um, yeah, hope, uh, hope, hope it all goes well today. Thanks a lot, Zane. Right. Cheers. So, yes, climate uh, campaigner John Knox there. Uh, Alrighty. Indigenous people in Australia and the Pacific have borne the brunt of nuclear testing. And this was not done unconsciously. We found documents in the British archives saying that, yes, there is uh, certain hazards, but only to primitive peoples, those that don't wear clothes and don't wash, unlike us British. So the sort of racism inherent in this whole operation was known and understood from the beginning that these were the casualties of a larger imperial policy and that they were able to bear the brunt because there were very small populations and didn't have much political voice. And as we fast forward to today, we see that same thing. 3CR, keeping you informed about Australia's nuclear past and present. At such a time, it's important to have a voice like 3CR, steady, constant, sane and committed to a nuclear-free Australia. Green Left Radio. All right, you're listening to Green Left. Uh, if you've only just tuned in, I'm Zane, and that's Fergal. Hello, I'm Fergal. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, all right, bit of uh, activist calendar action, uh, I think, is in order. Uh, and the front page of yesterday's Melbourne Age uh, is talking about the proposed plebiscite on equal marriage or, or same-sex marriage. That plebiscite may not actually be worded in a way that's inclusive of trans people. I wouldn't be surprised, actually. Uh, regardless, same-sex marriage reform advocates within the term of government have reacted angrily to the plans of some hardline conservatives to vote no change in Parliament, even if a future plebiscite votes yes. Arrangements for the plebiscite are being worked through with a view to a final set of um, options uh, being presented within weeks. Opponents, including Abbott loyalist Erica Betts and conservative strongman Corey Bernardi, <laughs> uh, have begun speaking out, declaring they will not back the change regardless of public opinion. And it is in that disgraceful and homophobic context that there is a Pride March happening this Sunday. Uh, marriage Equality Now, Sunday, January 31, Melbourne's iconic annual Midsummer Pride March recognises and celebrates Victoria's gay, lesbian, bisexual, intersex and transgender community while remembering the road we have already travelled on this journey to equality. So let's march together and send a message to Canberra that Victorians want marriage equality. Gather 12pm and then marching at 2pm sharp and that is in Fitzroy Street, St Kilda. So... Yeah, that is the place to be this Sunday, Fitzroy Street, St Kilda. Get across there, get amongst it, get some uh, get some rainbow gear on. Um, and there's also a forum we mentioned this last week, Paris and After, which way forward for the climate movements? It's on Wednesday, February 17 at 6:30 p.m. What does the Paris Climate Agreement actually mean? What should the climate movement be focusing on now? Speakers include Andrea Bunting from Climate Action Mordant and Socialist Alliance, David Spratt, climate activist and co-author of Climate Code Red, John Engelhardt, climate activist, citizen observer at the Paris Summit. And that's at the Resistance Centre, Level 5407, Swanston Street, City, on Feb 17. Um, now, in a moment, we're going to get Councillor Sue Bolton on the line. We tr um, tried to talk to her last week, but it didn't sort of work out. Um, yes, so I'll just hold off on my little introduction to Sue. But, um, yeah, she's going to be talking about the uh, anti-conscription campaign back in World War One. It's the 100-year anniversary of that. Um, and just before we talk to Sue, I just wanted to mention a bit of international news from um, this week's Green Left. Um, evidence of fresh torture under the new Sri Lankan regime. Um, when Mathripala Sirisena was elected as president of Sri Lanka in January last year, he promised to end human rights violations by the security forces. Under Sirisena's predecessor, Mahinda Rajapaksa, it was common practice for the army uh, and police to abduct and torture people. Some were later released while others were murdered. Many of the victims are Tamils, believed to be supporters of the struggle um, for an independent Tamil homeland. Whether they actually were um, activists or involved in the campaign or whether they were just summarily 
wiped out because they're Tamils, uh, which I, I think is often the case. Others are human rights activists and journalists critical of the government. Um, the International Truth and Justice Project Sri Lanka has published a re- report based on interviews with 20 Tamils who were abducted last year after Sirisena's elections and who are now living outside Sri Lanka. Their testimony was confirmed by physical evidence of torture, such as scarring, and by psychological or psychiatric sim- symptoms of torture and sexual abuse. Um, so, yes, if you've heard that... Sri Lanka's all peaceful and nice now since the new government took over. You would be mistaken, and that regime is still brutally repressing Tamil people, and it's something that uh, activists here should keep an ear to the ground for and, and support uh, local Tamil activists. And, and, and just not to mention the Tamils who are still fleeing Sri Lanka. Oh, not to mention the Tamils who are still fleeing Sri Lanka and seeking asylum in Australia. And being yeah. put in concentration yeah. camps. Yeah, they're genuine refugees. You mm. know, like, yeah. not that there should ever be a question of whether there's such thing as an ingenuine refugee. If you're a refugee, you're a refugee. Mm. So they're, yeah, they're it. And you are listening to Greenland Radio on 3CR, 8.55 a.m. All right, uh, this morning we have got Socialist Alliance Councillor Sue Bolton on the line. Um, Sue is uh, repping it uh, for the left on Moreland City Council. Um, and, yeah, there's been comparisons this week between Anzac Day and the myth-making that occurs around Australian military history versus the denial of genocide implicit in the annual celebration of Australia Day. So people saying, lest we forget the Anzacs, you know, the heroic, awesome wartime efforts of Australian troops and, you know, all of our freedoms stem from their imperialist conquests overseas, whereas uh, Aboriginal people are told to, they need to get over it. Um, It's worth remembering in that context that there was a strong campaign against Australian participation in World War I and against um, the forced conscription of, of troops. So, uh, yes, yeah, Sue's going to talk a bit about that this morning. So welcome, Sue. Hi, how's it going? Yeah, good. So, yeah, yeah. yeah tell us a bit about the campaign, because I'm, I'm pretty new to this myself. I've only just sort of started having this brought to my attention. Well, I think it is important that we remember the side of history that the um, ruling powers and the elites don't want us to remember uh, because Australia has been historically involved in many invasions overseas starting all the way back in the 1800s when Australia sent a military force to Sudan. Um, Some people know Australia sent troops to the Boer War Australia also sent troops to China to um, to put down the Boxer Rebellion. Um, this is as well as the invasion of Gallipoli and Australian participation in the First World War. And then after the Second World War, Australia kept a military base in Malaysia for many years and participated in a war against the communist movement in Malaysia. So Australia is certainly um, a very warring nation, um, usually invading other countries. Um, that's in addition to our recent history. So it is important to remember um, that, Austra- that there's always been 
a strong anti-war sentiment in Australia. And in the First World War, um, what tends to get remembered and, um, you know, becomes nauseatingly remembered um, is uh, battles over and over and over again um, from, you know, Gallipoli and other battles of the First World War. But what never gets um, any recognition in the mainstream is, the, is that there are a lot of people in Australia and around the world who oppose to their countries participating in the First World War. And in Australia, there was a strong anti-war sentiment, mm. even though there were a lot of people who volunteered to, a lot of young men who volunteered to join up and, and fight overseas. There was a strong anti-war sentiment. And then when conscription was announced in um, uh, and a call-up for um, conscription was announced in 1916, um, a massive anti-conscription movement developed, which mm. was really initiated by um, the socialist and trade union movements. Like Those two movements came out immediately on the front foot against conscription, um, and but also the women's movement played a really key role and the um, the Irish community played an important role. But the only reason why there was a referendum in Australia, and Australia was the only country that had any kind of vote in connection with participation in the First World War, hmm. the only reason there was a referendum is because um, the Billy Hughes, the Labor Prime Minister at the time, couldn't get it through the Senate. Um, so he was forced to go to a popular vote. Yeah, right. And uh, so, and what was the result of that vote? Well, it was uh, only a narrow victory, and you have to remember that every uh, establishment figure, with the exception of um, the Catholic Bishop Mannix, um, every other establishment figure was supported conscription. So all the newspaper editorials, um, all the all the capitalists, all of the institutional sort of authority kind of figures campaigned strongly for conscription. So this was a truly grassroots movement and there was a narrow victory and Brunswick and Coburg communities both um, voted against conscription um, and they were a, a bit of an epicentre of the uh, campaign against conscription hmm. and um, a local group in Brunswick-Coburg area has come together to, uh, you know, organise sort of commemoration activities around the anti-conscription struggle. So the, there was, there, and there were two um, referendums. One was 1916. Then, because that was defeated, there was a second referendum, which where conscription was defeated by an even bigger margin because there are a lot more bodies, um, a lot more dead soldiers being returned from the war and soldiers voted uh, soldiers on the front line also voted against conscription yeah right. and when, when was that second vote um so the first vote was october the 28th in 1916 hmm. the second vote was december the 20th in 1917 and i think that these two this movement this anti-conscription movement and there was also 
a large section, not all of it, but a large section of the anti-conscription movement was also anti-war, mm. not just against being called up, but, you know, were opposed to participation in the war. Um, that also had, um, you know, important flow-over flow into the anti-Vietnam War movement and the draft resistor movement um, during the Second World War. So I think, and, you know, that's... Um, it is an important heritage for us to remember because of the way in which um, governments ju just uh, can take a country to war um, without any kind of vote, any kind of, um, you know, any kind of genuine public discussion other than pure propaganda from, from the government. Um, and we can see what's happened you know, with Australia going to war in Iraq and supporting the US efforts in Iraq, um, that whole war and not only the invasion but the occupation, the policies of the occupation, the propping up of particular parties and, and organisations in Iraq mm. is what has led to this ultra-right-wing ISIS um, movement developing mm. in Iraq. It's con it contributed directly um, to that, so you know, it's um, it's it's very important that we revive the anti-war and um, anti-war traditions in in Australia. Um, you're listening to Sue Bolton from Moreland City Council. We're just going to play a quick announcement, and then uh, we'll come back. So stick around, Sue. Things weren't going well in my relationship. Family violence was making life difficult at home, but I didn't know where I could go for help. I was unsure about my rights because I was not yet a permanent resident. I was worried that if we separated, I might not be able to stay in Australia. I went to InTouch and they were able to help me by telling me about my options. If you need migration advice, contact InTouch for a free and confidential discussion with a migration agent in your language by calling 1800 755 988 or search In Touch Multicultural Centre online. In Touch. Brought to you by Victorian Women Lawyers and funded by Victoria Law Foundation. All right, you're listening to 3CR, 8.55am. This is Green Life Radio. And we've got Councillor Sue Bolton uh, on the line. Now, Sue, um, I was talking to you the other day about this, uh, and the, the women played a very strong role in the anti-conscription movement, and particularly that was the sort of time of the, the suffragette movement and uh, women campaigning for equal voting rights to men. Um, well, there are two particular women who played an important role, and there probably there will be many, many others, some of whom um, whose history may not have been really researched properly, and I'm certainly not an expert in this area. Mm. But uh, probably the most famous and one who played a really significant role in the anti-conscription movement was Adela Pankhurst, um, whose mother was... Um, Featured in the film, um, her mother, Emmeline Pankhurst, was featured in the recent film Suffragette. Um, mm. So Adela came out of the suffragette movement. She came to Australia and she and her husband, who is a trade union activist, uh, played really significant roles. Adela Pankhurst was jailed a couple of times during the fight against um, conscription and against the war. She was opposed to the war as well. Now, later on in her life, she went 
to the right. Um, but she played a really, um, you know, quite a, a brilliant role during the anti-war, anti-conscription campaign, and she was very prominent. So she gave the, because she was quite famous before she arrived in Australia, so she sort of gave, um, you know, a real voice in the public realm for the campaign. Another person who, another woman, um, activist, suffragette and anti-war activist, um, was Bella Guerin, who um, was secretary of the Brunswick um, Girls' School or Girls' High School um, at the time. And I don't think she was imprisoned. I mean, there were a lot of activists who were imprisoned in Pentridge Prison, but um, she also played quite a key role and, and you know, many other women as well. Um, my understanding from talking to some people, um, some local residents who've been... Um, Doing some research about this is that the women, the women's movement, women's organisations, play quite a key role in turning sentiment against the war. Mm. And then the other thing that seems to have been the case is um, some people who are familiar with the Brunswick area and catch the upfield train may know Anstey Station, and um, you know, which for me uh, about 12 months ago was just like. That's just Anstey Station. Um, but actually that station is named after a um, Victorian Labor MP who was also a member of the Victorian Socialist Party. And so there were a few of those early Labor Party members at that time who were also member the, members of the Victorian Socialist Party. And right. he played quite a key role... Uh, him and another um, Labor Party MP who was also a member of the Victorian Socialist Party in convincing the Labor Party senators to block the conscription vote. Hmm. So if um, Billy Hughes had have been able to get conscription passed through the Senate, there would have been no referendum at all. So it was really the key, the key people who played a key role, as far as I can tell, is, are the... Um, Labor MPs who are also members of the Victorian Socialist Party and um, and they managed to persuade enough of the Labor senators to vote against conscription. Um, so, yeah, that's what enabled the, that plus the incredible mass movement outside is what enabled the, um, the whole um, movement to develop. So their plans this year, now we've managed to win Moreland Council support for mm. some activities connected mm -hmm. to the commemoration, but we certainly don't want to leave it all to the council. We need um, local initiatives. Um, and, you know, their plans for some um, walking tours, historical tours to, um, you know, um, point out particular uh, sites of significance in the campaign. Um, we're also planning a peace conference. Um, now, we haven't worked out the definite date for that because what we want to do is, you know, talk about the um, significance of the anti-conscription um, campaign for today's struggles against war. Um, and we understand Treads Hall is also organising a number of activities, they're not public yet, um, to commemorate the um, anti-conscription campaign as well. Yeah, um, nice. So in the Moreland area we'll focus a bit more on the local um, local aspects of the campaign, um, but 
um, and we'll work in with um, Trades Hall and what's organised by, you know, the people organising um, the commemoration events at Trades Hall. So, yeah, th- so will be, there will be hopefully um, quite a bit of activity this year and I think this will be important because from officialdom... There's going to be a lot of flag-waving. Yeah, yeah, and and we'll have four years of commemorations of the 100th anniversary of this or that battle. Uh, but um, from officials, there might, there might be some tokenistic um, remembrance of the anti-conscription campaign, but yeah, it'll okay. probably be mostly tokenistic. Mm. And also, they probably won't recognise that a significant part of this campaign was against the war altogether mm. and um, along the sort of international communist motto of, um, you know, of the international brotherhood and sisterhood. You know, we shouldn't be fight workers shouldn't be fighting against each other from each other's countries in wars that are not in our interest, mm. um, in wars which are really only about dividing up the spoils of the world between... Um, you know, rich people. So that's an important heritage we've got to win back. For sure. Um, now, we've got to wrap up, but just briefly, there's a uh, Moreland Socialists meeting tomorrow, I understand. Yeah, so we've been organising um, Moreland Socialist meetings over the last um, four years, usually monthly meetings, um, and this next one is going to be on a Saturday. So these involve both um, social science members and other progressive activists who um, support uh, having a socialist on the council and trying to create a left, um, a, a left, a base for the left and, and socialist movement in the Moreland area. So um, people are welcome to attend um, 2 p.m. Moreland uh, Campbell Turnbull Library, 220 Melville Road. Um, West Brunswick. Okay, great. Well, um, yes, I'll uh, catch you there. And thank you very much for coming on this morning. And, uh, yeah, we'll keep an eye out for those commemoration activities as we get uh, closer to Anzac Day and closer to some of those anniversaries of the anti-conscription campaign. No worries. Thanks, Zane. Cheers. Bye. All right, and that is us for another week. Um Thank you for tuning into Green Left Radio, and make sure you stick around because, uh, as happens at 8:30 on Friday, Beyond Zero Emissions Radio is coming up. Right. Cheers, Virgil. No worries, Zane. Have, have a festive weekend. I will do. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Green Left Radio is brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper. Green Left Weekly provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to Green Left Weekly and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first seven issues. Thank you for listening. You are tuned to 3CR Community Radio 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au.